Today on the Matt Wall Show, one all-ages drag show was shut down in Tennessee over the weekend, but another one was still held, and it's the worst we've seen yet. Also, Italy elects its first female prime minister, but the media sadly cannot celebrate because she has wrong opinions, it turns out. Plus, the FBI sends 30 agents to raid a pro-life activist's home, despite the fact that he broke no laws at all. The former mayor of um, Atlanta, who let BLM burn her city to the ground, has now repositioned herself as an advocate of law and order. And in our daily cancellation, a TikTok feminist laughs at 1950s dating advice, but the advice is way better than anything you'll hear from a TikTok feminist. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. With the consumer price index increasing yet again, the stock market has been in absolute turmoil. What is the current administration doing to quell the surge of inflation? Well, they're spending more taxpayer dollars, of course. Don't bury your head in the sand while your savings deplete. Diversify into gold with Birch Gold today. Text Walsh to 989898, and Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on protecting your savings with gold in a tax-sheltered account. The experts over at Birch Gold have almost 20 years of experience in converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metal IRAs. Uh, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers, there's no reason to not reach out to Birch Gold. Gold has always been your best hedge against inflation. If you have a 401k or IRA that's underperforming, all you got to do is text Walsh to 989898, and you can convert that into an IRA in precious metals right now. Again, text Walsh to 989898, and Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on diversifying into gold tax-free. Take the necessary steps to hedge against inflation today and protect your hard-earned money. Get your free info kit by texting Walsh to 989898 now. The Memphis Museum of Science and History had, a, uh, had planned to celebrate science and history this past weekend with an all-ages, family-friendly, quote-unquote, drag show and also dance party. The festivities were set to begin at 7 in the evening and then continue until 11 at night. Uh, there would be, along with the cross-dressers, a full bar, you know, people uh, drinking, drinking uh, until they have their fill. Of course, to normal, non-groomer adults, it's already wildly inappropriate to invite small children to a late-night dance party with alcohol, and that would be true even if no drag queen showed up. I mean, with the possible exceptions of wedding receptions, I suppose, but even then, you know, young kids are going to go home before 11 at night. But maybe aside from those, it's hard to think of a scenario where it would be acceptable to involve kids in an event like this, a dance party with alcohol that goes to 11 at night. Why would you want to? I mean, what is the non-creepy, non-pedophilic reason for opening this up to children? In fact, um, I, this is a question that um, I've been asking, many of us have been asking for, for years now. I actually called the museum myself a couple of weeks ago and posed this question to them when I first heard about this event they were planning. It's a simple one. I mean, why do you want kids there? And also, what does a drag dance party have to do with science or history? Now, as to the latter question, the woman on the other end of the line, who initially told me that she could answer any question I might have about the event, she said that, that, that uh, drag is it's a part of the culture, and thus it's a, it's a matter of history because it's part of culture. Now, I wasn't especially persuaded by that reasoning, but I was more interested in getting an answer to the second question, why do you want kids at the event? And to that, she kind of stuttered and paused and responded, and I quote, this is what she said, because it's an event. Why do you want kids at the event? Well, because it's an event. Yes, but why are you involving kids? At that point, she actually uh, she said that actually, you know, it turns out that she's not the best person to answer my questions, and she'll have to 
have someone call me back. But it doesn't seem that they ever came up with an answer to the why do you want kids there question, at least not one that they are willing to say out loud. And I know that based on what happened this past Friday night, which was supposed to be the day of the event. The museum ended up shutting down the drag dance party for children at the last minute, uh, blaming the presence of allegedly armed protesters. There's a, a very small group of people that the media identified as quote-unquote proud boys who came and stood peacefully outside of the museum. And this has prompted much hand-wringing from uh, the very same people who had absolutely nothing to say a few weeks ago when a much larger battalion of masked and heavily armed Antifa showed up to a drag show in Texas confronting a peaceful group of protesters there. Now, in that case, there was no problem at all, but now it's a big deal. Um, in any case, the event was canceled, and the uh, drag performers, or would-be drag performers that night anyway, expressed their frustration. Listen. I'm disappointed in Memphis. I am. I just wish... I wish people were just more knowledgeable and more accepting. I do. Uh, particularly disappointed. I feel like um, when we do things that cancel, it, it kind of uh, reinvigorates these groups to continue the work that they're doing with intimidating people. The Memphis Museum of Science and History hosted a Summer of Pride program celebrating the LGBTQ plus community. The drag show, billed as family-friendly, was supposed to be the grand culmination. Susan Gray and her husband expressed their disapproval, displaying signs next to the American flag on their car. Why does it bother you when someone else brings their own child to see this performance? Child abuse. I don't care who does it. It's wrong. Why are you telling people to leave when no one asked you to tell people to leave? We're not telling people to leave. We're telling people to exit the parking lot. It Why wasn't our decision to shut the museum down. Organizer Barbie Wire, heartbroken the show won't go on. Angry, Mosh and MPD didn't stand up to protesters. People, there's an entire exhibit in there that's about the history of police removing queer people from spaces, of a country that does not want us to exist, of a culture that does not want us to exist. And so tonight proves that we are still living as a part of that history. Hmm. You know, it's obvious from the tone of the questioning that the local NBC affiliate has chosen a side. They've, they've sided with uh, the drag groomers. But even so, they inadvertently provided a very telling contrast. Because on the one hand, you had a normal middle-aged woman who has taken the exceedingly rational stance that child sexual abuse is unacceptable, even if the parents are involved. In fact, the parents' involvement makes it worse, if anything, certainly not better. On the other hand, you have a man in a literal clown wig with insane clown posse face paint strutting around in a women's dress, babbling that he's being oppressed because he's not allowed to dance for a bunch of kids at a science museum. Now, it's up to each of us as individuals to decide whose side we prefer to be on here. But you notice that still none of the people involved were able or willing to engage with the one central complaint that the protesters have, namely that the event involves children. Okay, nobody is showing up to protest adult-only drag shows. Those happen all the time in this country. No protesters. Footage from adult-only drag shows never go viral with people on the right outraged about it. These uh, female mocking minstrel shows have existed in this, in this country for decades, and they were never a major issue until they got the kids involved. Now, I personally think that all drag shows are weird and ugly and bad and degrading, 
But even I wouldn't be talking about them if they simply left the kids out of it. it. Is that too much to ask? I mean, go ahead and dress up like some kind of weird sexualized Muppet and prance around on stage lip syncing to Lady Gaga songs. Go ahead and do that. Just do it out of sight where I don't have to see it. And most importantly, kids don't have to see it. That's all we're asking. And it proves to be too much. It was certainly too much for the drag show over in Chattanooga this weekend as Tennessee continues, unfortunately, to be involved in uh, these kinds of issues in all of the worst ways. Robbie Starbuck provided footage of this um, all-ages drag spectacle that again happened on the same weekend. And it's some of the most disturbing that we've seen. So we'll watch some of this and I'll have to narrate it because it's, there's not a lot of audio, but let's play this uh, clip. So you see there, dressed like the Little Mermaid. And a child is stroking his genital area. And then we've got another. Okay, here's another drag guy. And here's the move you always see. Oh, yep, spreads his legs open for the kids. Kids are standing there totally confused. Oh, there's a kid sitting at the bar. Nothing wrong with that, right? And then this guy dressed like a fat poison ivy from Batman walking around. And the kids are just, like, the kids are not into it. They don't know why they're there. Look, they walk away. You know, look, the, the girl's hiding behind her mom. All right, it turns off. I mean, that ended up being the most telling moment in, that, in the clip is that uh, this guy is walking around. The kid hides behind her mom. She does not want to be there. She's like, who the hell is this guy? I don't want to talk to this guy. So to recap, there is a man in a Little Mermaid outfit um, who, uh, you know, there's not even any time to make any jokes about black mermaids because uh, the, the more relevant fact is that he's standing there as a young child rubs his crotch. Now, obviously, the child has no idea what she's doing. She's just a kid. She sees the sequenced, you know, uh, Little Mermaid outfit. But he realizes what she's doing, and he makes no attempt to stop her, just stands there. Another man spreads his leg for legs for the children attendees, and then another one walks around through the crowd, slowly terrorizing each child individually. Now, it's obvious when you watch this kind of footage that these are not drag events where kids just happen to be attending, which would be bad enough. Rather, the whole point of the event is to expose and indoctrinate kids. I mean, it's not like there's any entertainment value otherwise. These are just pudgy guys who can't sing or dance. They can't do anything. Just kind of like sauntering around, looking like creatures from Pan's Labyrinth, occasionally molesting a child as they walk by. Why, though? What's the point? Nobody involved will explain why they want the kids there, why, in fact, they structure the entire event around the involvement of kids. That's because the answers are all things they won't say out loud. It's not that they don't have an answer. It's that they won't say it. Now, we know, of course, that the main point and the most sinister is to sexualize the kids, rob them of their innocence. But there's more to it even than that. These drag performances are gaudy and ugly. And the left, as we know, hates beauty and they seek to condition us from the youngest ages to idolize ugliness. This, and, it, and it really, it, it, it works because this is why many young people today go out of their way to make themselves ugly. They've been brought up in a culture that worships ugliness. And in the cult of ugliness, drag is a sacred ritual. 
And finally, as always, the objective is to confuse. I mean, that's why the primary emotion you see on the faces of the kids involved in, in this sort of thing, involved against their will, is confusion. They're just confused. They don't understand why they're there. They don't, they don't understand why these men are dressed like this. They don't understand any of it. It is bewildering and disorienting and confusing. That's how our culture wants them. Because it's much easier to manipulate and control a person when they're lost in a fog of confusion. So ugly, confused, overly sexualized. This is our culture in a nutshell. And there are few things uglier, more confused or sexualized than a drag show. So it's no wonder that the left is so obsessed with them. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, Italy has elected its first female prime minister, uh, which is reason to celebrate, you would think. I mean, uh, especially for the woke among us, they love it when glass ceilings are shattered. And this is a glass ceiling. It's a first female prime minister. This is what this, uh, we can celebrate, can't we? Can't we? Well, no, we can't, uh, it turns out, because there are qualifications. There are always qualifications. That's why it's, it's never quite so simple as to say, we talk about identity politics on the left, and, and we might say that, well, they, you know, they hate straight white men, but uh, they, and they favor everybody else. And I, I sort of wish it was that simple. I mean, I, that still wouldn't be good, especially as a straight white man myself. But um, it's, it's actually not that simple. And, and at least that would be, in some strange way, a sort of a consistent ethic. Like, uh, well, straight white men are the villains and everyone else is the hero. And like, so there's some consistency there. It's not true. It's not good, but it's consistency. Um, but there, there is no consistency in this case because... Yes, they supposedly, they, they pretend anyway to champion women and so-called marginalized groups and all the rest of it. But that's only if the people in those allegedly marginalized groups um, submit and surrender ideologically. Okay, if they conform themselves ideologically, then they will be championed. But if not, then not only are they villains also, but they're the worst villains of all. Because along with being villains, they're also traitors. Because, you know, if you're a woman, then as far as the left's concerned, you owe them your allegiance. You, you are supposed to have whatever opinions they assign to you. And if you don't, then you've, you've betrayed them. You're a class traitor. Um, a, a traitor to your sex, even though they can't define what that sex even is. So Italy's next prime minister, it turns out, uh, Giorgia Maloney, she doesn't fit the qualifications because she's on the right. And since she's on the right, her democratic election, her selection by the people of Italy who chose her, this is actually, turns out, a fascist takeover. It's uh, in, with, 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 of course, it, it, in, in a, in a, it, uh, it's a fascist takeover that harkens back to events in history that, they were, that the media is very quick to connect those dots. So I just want you to watch this report from CBS. And it's, it is, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of breathtaking just in how there's no attempt at all to even pretend to be objective in how they're reporting this. Not even going to pretend. Let's watch this. Voters in Italy tomorrow appear poised to make a hard right turn. The woman expected to become prime minister leads a party with roots in neo-fascism. Chris Livesay is in Rome. 
Italy is revered for its history, reflected in palazzos and ruins and statues, but not all of that history is beautiful, and many fear that one particularly ugly chapter could soon repeat itself. This year marks the 100th anniversary of Mussolini's historic march on Rome, plunging the country into two decades of dictatorship, an alliance with Hitler, and a second world war. Today, his fascist party is gone, but many say she is carrying the torch. Giorgia Maloney, leader of the Brothers of Italy. What was once a fringe party has ballooned into the biggest in the country, and it's now poised to lead the most hard-right government since World War II. The fundamental problem in Italy is becoming the, the illegal immigration. Too many immigrants. To protect the, the traditional family, a family composed by a mom, a dad, and sons. Italy's conservative superstar remains fiercely opposed to adoptions and surrogacy for same-sex couples. The fiery 45-year-old is comfortable with some of the hallmarks of Italian fascism, like this motto. God, fatherland, and family. And that's clearly a post-fascist party. Um, with a post-fascist agenda. Uh, Irene Caratelli is a political scientist at Rome's American University. It has the flame uh, in the symbol of the political party that goes back to the idea of the flame on the grave of Mussolini. The same flame is on Mussolini's grave? Yes. Now it's a historic election also because Giorgia Maloney would be Italy's first ever female prime minister. An important glass ceiling, but one that's been overshadowed by her politics. Chris Lipsey, CBS News, Rome. I was just waiting for that at the end. I wanted to see if they at least mentioned it. And then finally at the end, oh yeah, yeah, first female prime minister. But you know, the thing that we would, I mean, we would be tripping over ourselves in, in adulation. You know, if not for the fact that it's overshadowed by politics. Well, who's chosen to make it overshadowed? Well, who, who decided that? Why is it overshadowed by politics? It, well, you've decided that in the media. It's overshadowed by your politics, not hers. Now, I, in some ways, I am um, the perfect candidate for this, you know, propaganda from the media because I, like many Americans, I imagine, I don't know anything about Georgia. Maloney. I, I never heard of her until this past weekend. I, I don't follow Italian politics at all, I, I confess to you. Um, so never heard of her. And so that means that I'm, I'm like a blank slate going in. So the media, they can, they, and, and this is what they're counting on. That, like, most of us, we don't follow, we don't follow Italian politics. A lot of people in this country don't even really follow American politics. So forget about politics overseas. And so they're counting on, well, we're blank slates and they could just tell us whatever they want about her and we'll believe it. And the thing is that that's true. Like I'm okay. I'm I'm listening. I have, I have an open mind. What's what's the media? What case can the media make against her? And um, just based on what they're telling me, I'm like taking their word for it actually. And what they tell me is that Georgia Maloney uh, believes in protecting the nuclear family, believes in protecting her borders, and the motto that she professes is God, fatherland, and family. So. God, country, family. So they're making their case against her. This is the worst they could find. We can, we, we can only assume. If there was something worse, they'd tell us. If there were some darker skeletons buried in the closet that they knew about, they would present those to us, I imagine. So this is the worst they could do. And I hear that and I think, well, she sounds great. 
Now, already I'm posed to like her because our media hates her. That's, you know, that does, doesn't work this way 100% of the time, probably about 95% of the time, eh, maybe 99. Probably 99% of the time, if the media tells you to hate someone, it means that you should actually like them. It means that they're great. There, there might be the 1% of the time when inadvertently, you know, the media hates someone who's actually worthy of our, uh, of our loathing. I can't even think of a recent example of that, but maybe it's happened. So already I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm poised to, uh, to like this woman. And then, and then that's what they tell us. Well, she's, she's a, a, a fan of the nuclear family and of borders and of faith. Sounds fantastic. And then I saw this. So there's this speech that she gave. I think it's a couple of years ago. Um, a speech that she gave that's making the rounds online. And I'll play it for you. Obviously, you won't be able, unless you speak Italian, you're not going to be able to understand this. So I'll have to, I'll have to translate for you based on the, the subtitles. I was tempted to attempt a uh, bad Italian accent while I read the subtitles, but I won't do that because actually the message, I don't want the message to get lost in my bad accent. So let's go ahead and play this. This is about what we are doing here today. Why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightened? There's a single answer to all these questions. Because it defines us. Because it is our identity. Because everything that defines us is now an enemy. For those who would like us to no longer have an identity and to simply be perfect consumer slaves. And so they attack national identity, they attack religious identity, they attack gender identity, they attack family identity. I can't define myself as Italian, Christian, woman, mother. No. I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number. Because when I'm only a number, when I no longer have an identity or roots, then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators. The perfect consumer. This is a great speech. I wish we could actually understand what she was saying. It'd be a lot better than what I'm doing. That's the reason why. That's why we inspire so much fear. That's why this event inspires so much fear. Okay. That is a, a speech that I wish a Republican politician would give. I think we have a few that would maybe get close to that. But she's really getting to the roots of it. And this is something that we uh, talk about on this show quite a bit. You know, the, this, this uh, concept of identity. And we, we hear about identity all the time on the left. They're seemingly obsessed with it. But really what they're trying to do is deprive us of identity. So this is the point that she's making. And, and she's right. This is why they fear her. This is why they hate her. Because, you know, if you're on the right, if you're a conservative at all, of course the media is going to hate you. But um, it's one thing to just sort of be on the right and you can, you can parrot some of the lines you hear from other conservatives and you know some of the talking points and all of that. And that's mostly what you get from conservatives in this country. They know the talking points. They know what lines to say to get applause from certain, you know, from certain audiences. Um, but if you can show that you actually understand what the left is doing and why they're doing it, you really understand their agenda, you can get a little bit beneath the surface. Well, if you demonstrate that, then you're really a threat to them. Because now you're giving away the trade secrets and they can't have that. And from the little I know about this woman, just based on that speech alone, I can tell why. That's, that's all I need to know. Because this is the project on the left. It is to deprive us of identity, to take identity away. 
And how they do that? They do that by, as she says, like, first of all, severing you from all of the things, all of the um, outward uh, systems and institutions and structures that give you identity, your family, your faith, your country, um, your bloodline, your ancestors. Take all that away. You know, take out a, a, a chainsaw and just cut you away from all of that. And it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a bloody surgery for most people. Sever you from that and just kind of leave you uh, floating in the ether. Attached to nothing. Not grounded in anything. But then even that's not enough because after they've done that, and that's been the project of the left for decades now, is to turn you against your own family, turn you against your country, turn you against your faith, have, have you abandoned your faith entirely. Uh, so they do that. That's not enough now. There's the next step is to, go, is, to go, is to go into your mind and to take away your sense of self. And this is where all the gender ideology stuff comes into play. We talked about it in the opening. It's, it's about confusion. They want you confused. They do this to kids at very young ages. This is why they send them to the drag shows. Make you confused. Take away your sense of identity, your sense of self. And then, uh, and then you're, just, you're a perfect sort of vessel and vassal at that point. All right. So it looks like Italy's got their, getting their act together politically at least. Maybe we could follow suit. Let's check in with a, uh, another news report. It's a local news report here in uh, Nashville about my expose on Vanderbilt. Now, never mind that in this report, just like in many other media reports about the Vanderbilt thing, they call me, they misgender me by calling me a conservative blogger. I haven't blogged like, in like, I, I don't know, six or seven years, but I'm not going to split hairs. Um, they do interview a local trans activist who's, who's uh, very upset. She's very upset at me and at any, any of the rest of us who want to stop people from mutilating kids. And uh, he, rather, he's very upset, I should say, at me and the rest of us. Let's listen to why. Folks like me aren't monstrous. These children, no child is monstrous, right? But members of the transgender community like Darren Johnson say this would do much more harm than good. The real danger is when that type of care is taken away. She says she might not still be sitting here if it wasn't for the gender-affirming care she received at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and hates the thought that minors might be stripped of those options. Places like Vanderbilt are few and far between. Johnson says despite how the transgender clinic was characterized, she found Vanderbilt to be ethical and thoughtful every step of the way. There are age-appropriate uh, uh, limits on what type of treatments are even discussed or offered. Which is why she's worried about what may happen next on Capitol Hill. It wouldn't just be a shame if that went away. It would make, her, make for poorer families. It would make for poorer uh, communities. Chris Davis, News Channel 5. Representative Lambert tells News Channel 5 he plans to introduce legislation regarding Vanderbilt's clinic next January when the new legislative session begins. Okay. So, first of all, he says this is the gaslighting you always get. Uh, no, no child is monstrous. They're, 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 they're treating children like monsters. No, no, no. It's not, it's not the children that we're saying are monstrous. 
Um, we're saying that we're saying the opposite, actually. They're, they're, children are not Frankenstein monsters that you can chop into pieces and put other pieces on. No, children are they are they are human beings. They are whole human beings with dignity, and that's how they should be treated. And when you drug them and uh, you cut them, you cut pieces of them off, you are, along with, with so many other things, depriving them of. You, you are of that dignity. You're, you're desecrating that human dignity that they have. And you're doing it at an age when they cannot possibly consent to it. And we hear also that, uh, well, it's, we end up with poorer families. I don't know exactly what that means. The, the, fa- the state of the family. So the trans activists now, they're, they're defenders of the family unit. And the way that you defend the family unit is to mutilate kids. But you notice, that, and I've, I've seen many of these local news reports where they, they're doing the best they can to bring in trans activists, bring in a doctor, bring in someone who will explain why, you know, our, our uh, efforts to stop this from happening to kids, who, who will explain why that's a, a horrible thing. And this is the best they can do. And you notice that none of them have actually offered a clear, coherent defense of what the hospital is doing to kids. Instead, all we hear is that, well, it's age appropriate. It's an assertion. Okay? So to say that it's age appropriate is an assertion. That's not a defense. I understand that's the assertion. I understand that you think it's age appropriate. My question is, how have you arrived at that conclusion? Can you defend that? Okay, I do not see how it is age appropriate to chop the organs off of kids. Can you explain how that could possibly be age appropriate? How can a child consent to that? They can't do it. They can't even attempt to do it. And they won't. All right, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, FBI agents reportedly raided the home of a pro-life activist in Pennsylvania on Friday and arrested him. A group of between 25 and 30 FBI agents raided the Bucks County, Pennsylvania home of pro-life activist Mark Houck early Friday morning. Uh, his family told LifeSite News, Houck is the leader of a nonprofit group that provides sidewalk counseling at abortion clinics in Philadelphia. The arrest seemed to stem from a court case that was dismissed by a federal court in Philadelphia, but was somehow picked up by the Department of Justice, his family said. Houck's wife, Ryan Marie, said, the kids were all just screaming. It was all very scary and traumatic. Ryan Marie Houck told the outlet that the group of agents in SWAT gear arrived in 15 vehicles outside the family home at around 7.05 a.m. This is on Friday morning. So you've got about 30 FBI agents in SWAT gear in 15 vehicles rolling up to this family's house early in the morning. The agents quickly surrounded the house and began pounding on the door, demanding they open up. Houck reportedly tried to get the agents to calm down, noting that his seven children were scared, but the agents kept shouting. They had big, huge rifles pointed at Mark and pointed at me and kind of pointed throughout the house, his wife said. How can his wife ask the agents why they were there, to which the agents allegedly replied that they were there to arrest him. His wife asked for a warrant, but they said that they were uh, going to take him whether they had a warrant or not, Ryan Murray Houck recalled. She protested, saying that what the agents were doing was tantamount to kidnapping. Only then did they uh, provide a copy of the warrant shortly afterward. Houck was 
apparently taken out and put into some into one of the vehicles. But the FBI agents quickly softened quickly softened once they realized the distress they'd inflicted on the family. Hauk's wife recounted. Uh, once they realized, <laughs> oh, they didn't realize. You know, yeah, uh, it's it, rolling up seven o'clock in the morning on a Friday. You got a house. There are seven kids in there. You're all wearing SWAT gear. There's 30 of you rolling up in 15 vehicles. Uh, they had no idea that that would be distressing to the kids. <laughs> no clue. Um, his wife says, after they had taken Mark and the kids were all screaming that he was their best friend, the agents kind of softened a bit. I think they realized what was happening, or maybe they actually looked at the warrant. Now, uh, Hauk's wife is being very generous and nice here, uh, which doesn't surprise me, because having been in the pro-life world for a long time, this is why it's, it's always so absurd to me. You know, it's like, and you don't have to be in the pro-life world or be a pro-life activist to realize how absurd it is, but especially if you've been in that world and you hear the way that uh, pro-lifers are demonized. Like there are a bunch of, you know, the, the, the caricature of pro-lifers standing around shouting and screaming and they're, you know, really aggressive, dangerous, scary people. It is so ludicrous when you meet these people and almost all of them are, they're just like the nicest people you'll meet in the world. The ones that are in the pro-life cause. So she's being very nice here, even to the FBI agents after they uh, kidnapped her husband. She added, quote, they look pretty ashamed of what had just happened. According to the warrant shared by LifeSite reporter Patrick Delaney, Houck's arrest stems from an, an indictment on charges of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, or the FACE Act of 1994, specifically for attacking a patient escort. According to his wife, Houck was providing sidewalk counseling at abortion centers in Philadelphia last year and had taken his then 12-year-old son. On multiple occasions over weeks, a pro-abortion protester allegedly shouted vulgarities and insults at the boy. Hauk repeatedly told the protester not to speak to his son, but the protester continued to encroach on the boy's personal space, uh, still spewing vulgarities. Finally, Hauk shoved the man away, causing him to fall down. The protester was not injured, but tried to sue Hauk. Though the case was thrown out this summer, it was somehow picked up by the DOJ. Okay, so that's, that's what led to this incident at the house. Uh, and that was all it was. You have a, a clinic. This is a, a pro-abortion protester. I don't even know if it was a, was it a clinic escort or not. Not that it matters. Um, yeah, it was a, it was, so it was a pro-abortion protester who showed up to counter, you know, the, and, and, and for how can, for most other pro-lifers who go to abortion clinics, and again, if you've ever been to one of these demonstrations, you know how most of them go. It's, there's not shouting, there's not screaming. Usually it's just standing there prayerfully. And then there will be sidewalk counselors who will try to approach the women as they're going into the abortion clinics. And they're not approaching them and screaming at them. They're not physically assaulting them. They're not verbally assaulting them. They're only trying to provide them with information because information is what they are not given by the abortion clinic. The abortion clinic doesn't want them to have any information at all. So the sidewalk counselor is just trying to say, here, would you like some information about your baby, about this procedure that you're about to undergo, what the consequences are? We'd like to give you some information. Abortion clinics will hire what they call clinic escorts, and their only job is to get the women in the door without encountering any of this information. They don't want the women to get any information on the way in the door. It's, it's to get them in the door ignorant, to protect their ignorance as they walk in the door. Um, and as we've talked about on the show recently, in, in the federal government passed a, a law back in the 90s called the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, which, uh, or the FACE Act, 
which codifies this, which says that you know you're, that uh, pro that pro lifers are not allowed to get within within X number of feet of the uh, entrance to the abortion clinic. But that was not violated in this case, and that's why it was thrown out in court. And still, the DOJ they got wind of it and they decided they were going to send some FBI goons to this guy's house anyway. And while they're doing this, just to emphasize again, while you have the FBI sending thirty agents to this guy's house based on a minor incident that happened a year ago where a guy got shoved, and he only got shoved because he was verbally assaulting and harassing a child. So they can send 30 agents for that. And uh, meanwhile, have there, been, have, have there been any squadrons of FBI agents showing up at uh, anyone's house to, to, to figure out you know, why these pro-life pregnancy centers are getting attacked? Because that's also included under the FACE Act. It becomes a federal crime if you damage, commit vandalism on a pro-life pregnancy center. The FBI has done nothing about that whatsoever. But they've got all the resources they need. I mean, this is as many, to give you an idea of how big a deal this was to them, this is as many as they sent to Bubba Wallace's garage to look into a garage, to a suspicious garage door pull. All right, one other thing. White House advisor Keisha Lance Bottoms has some thoughts about um, MAGA people, as she calls them, i.e. half the country. Let's listen to that. This election is a very important election, not just for Democrats, but also for Republicans, also for independents, and anyone who cares about the United States of America. There is a MAGA Republican agenda that gives no consideration to the rule of law, that has no respect for a woman's right to choose, that wants to defund the FBI. There is a MAGA Republican agenda that thought that it was okay to attack our nation's capital on, on, on January 6th. I think people will think of all of these things um, when they go to the ballot box, no matter what their party affiliation, affiliation is, and, and I think that they will vote accordingly. You know, I've noticed, and I think a lot of people have noticed a certain phrase that you have been using since the very first answer, and that's MAGA Republicans or MAGA Republican agenda. It is a tough line uh, taking, being taken by the president and by you here right now against Republicans writ large. My question is, will the president and will folks in the administration in the between now and the November 8th elections keep hammering away at that at that phrase, at that imagery. Well, I think it will be important for all of us who care about the United States of America to call out what we see. And what we see, again, with this MAGA Republican agenda is an effort to disrupt our democracy. So whether it be through November and beyond November, I think it will always be important to call out any effort there is to destroy, essentially destroy the United States of America. Yeah. So President the, Biden has been very clear. Cut that. So that's, uh, that's the MAGA Republican agenda. And the reason, I mean, I, she's asked why they, are they going to keep hammering? It's, it's, a, it's a tough line you're taking against the MAGA Republicans. Yeah, that's, that's one way of putting it, a tough line when you're demonizing half the country. And um, it's impossible to overstate just how unprecedented this actually is to have the president, the White House, uh, openly demonizing the voters. Now, 
there's there's nothing strange about demonizing your political opponents, elected officials. Okay, that happens on both sides. That's always happened. But to have the president going after the voters too, and that's and that's why they specify MAGA Republicans, the MAGA Republican agenda, MAGA people, MAGA extremists, whatever you know, whatever however they phrase it. The idea is to include not just the elected Republicans, but the people who vote for them also. You know, they want you to imagine a Trump rally and all Trump himself and all the people in the in the stands there with the hats on. All of them are a threat. And Ke- Keisha Lance Bottoms, well, she's an advocate for the rule of law. She says that MAGA Republicans are they oppose the rule of law. And she's also a critic now of defunding law enforcement, which is very interesting because here's another fascinating thing to note about Keisha Lance Bottoms. She was the mayor of Atlanta up until very recently. So she was mayor when BLM burned her city. She was mayor when a cop justifiably and legally shot Rayshard Brooks outside of a Wendy's when, as you, if you may recall, Rayshard Brooks fell asleep because he was drunk. He was in the drive-through line at Wendy's, fell asleep drunk in his car. They called the police because what else are they going to do? Police show up and Brooks assaults the cop, physically assaults them and tries to steal their weapon. Does steal it, in fact, and then gets shot for his trouble. You, you could not have a more justified police shooting than that. Totally justified. And uh, yet BLM went into action. They showed up at the Wendy's where this happened. They burned the Wendy's down. Just because this incident occurred in the parking lot, they figured, let's burn the Wendy's down. People in the community work there. They need the Wendy's for a job. Oh, who cares? Let's burn it to the ground. And oh, oh, also, by the way, while they were burning the Wendy's to the ground, to the ground uh, they, they shot and killed an eight-year-old girl whose only crime was she was in a car that was driving by, and they just fired and shot the girl, killed her. Mayor Lance Bottoms did nothing about that at all. I mean, she did nothing to, to protect her city. She did nothing to stop BLM. Uh, the city ended up getting sued by the family of this, of this poor girl, and rightfully so, because of the, of the official negligence that led up to this. So she does a horrible job as the mayor of Atlanta. She oversees the destruction of her city and its collapse, its continued collapse into chaos. And then she's awarded with a job in the White House and now has repositioned herself as an advocate of law and order. And she would actually dare to criticize Republicans for wanting to supposedly defund law enforcement. She defunded the police when she was mayor of Atlanta. Now, she, she specified that, well, she didn't, she didn't really shy away from calling it defunding, but she did say, well, we're, gonna, we're, uh, we're reallocating resources away from law enforcement to other things. In other words, defunding the police. Just totally, utterly shameless. But it's easy to act that way when you have no soul, basically. Let's get to the comment section. Daily cancellations are the law. Justin Perro, I think I'm going to say, says 1.71 million subscribers. This channel has really been killing the game since Matt did the documentary. Been here since the show was him ranting in a car. So cool to see the channel grow exponentially since then. 
Uh, yeah, we have uh, uh, the growth of the channel has been pretty extraordinary, I have to say. And we have our audience, the Sweet Baby Gang, to thank for that. Uh, but if you haven't subscribed yet to the channel, then you should take this as your opportunity to do so. And also, you should be ashamed that you have not done so yet. Uh, let's see. Corey Bernard says, Matt, you're completely wrong about picky eaters. I was one when I was a kid, and my mom handled it exactly the way you said. Well, I never ate the food I didn't like, ever, even after years, and my mom never gave in either. I ended up developing a very low appetite as a result and became a very underweight, very underweight even into my 30s just because of my low appetite. And when I say underweight, I literally mean a 15 on the BMI index, and constantly not being satisfied with my food growing up made me eat only junk as an adult. All I wanted was flavor satisfaction, not satiation. I had to relearn how to have an appetite and eat good food again. It wasn't until I was 32 that I finally had a normal body weight. It would have been better if my mom had let me get full on something else rather than force me to not eat the food I didn't like. It forced me to have a bad relationship with food that I struggle with. I grew out of my pickiness with food, as most kids will. Don't give them eating disorders as a solution. Well, I, I'm, I have to say, this So this just strikes me as, uh, you say your mom forced you to not eat the food you didn't like. I don't think your mom was forcing that on you. And I still must insist again that you like find an example of someone in a third world country where the, 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 the can you, I, I'd be curious. Examples of picky eaters in third world countries. I, I think if you went to a third world country and just even said the phrase, I'm a picky eater, they would look at you like it's, it, they wouldn't understand it. What do you mean picky eater? What does that mean? So I still think that this is a first world luxury. And I would also say that you might be an extreme case because of your own stubbornness, although your mom, I think, handled it the correct way. In, in 95% of cases, if your kid is a picky eater and you don't give in, you don't, you, you don't start doing the thing where you make them a separate meal, don't let them eat snacks, that's another big thing. Kids are always obsessed with eating snacks during the day, you got to keep the snacks away from them. And if you do that, then they'll get out of their picky eating phase pretty quickly. I, we've done this with our own kids four times. You know, every kid goes through a phase where, they're, where they are refusing to eat dinner, and it's, it's relatively easy to break them of that. I still maintain. Melissa says, Matt, I have to agree with those who say that you're, uh, you're giving the right, quote-unquote, she puts it in quotes, too much credit for resisting gender ideology. Progressive feminists were first to the battlefield on this issue and deserve more credit than you give them. This was, again, apparently a big argument um, on Twitter over the weekend. How much, how much credit should we give feminists? Feminists aren't giving, given enough credit. I'll say a couple things about that. I think I've probably already said enough. One point is that there is a difference between the situation in the UK and the situation here in the United States. And I think it is quite apparent that left-wing feminists in the UK um, have had some success, some, some significant success in pushing back um, against gender ideology in terms of policy, in terms of winning the hearts and minds of the public. You know, they've had success there. That's not the case in the USA. Now, there are maybe some, you know, there are some left-wing feminists in this country who are outspoken critics of gender ideology, but um, almost all of the progress being made in, on this front is happening on the right. It just is in this country. And the other point, too, is that if you're obsessed with getting credit 
Like if that's your if that's your 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 uh, your primary focus is making sure you get all the credit that you want, then you're just going to be useless in the fight. And this is my my problem, even with the feminists in the in the UK, who again have made some good headway in their country on this issue. But then what is a woman comes out and uh, all all they can talk about is, well, we didn't get enough credit. We should have been in this fight. Why didn't we get more credit? You take yourself out of the fight. You make yourself irrelevant when you become obsessed with getting credit. Adam says, Matt, I need you to chime in on the great debate of our time. Candy corn, yay or nay? Yeah, I know Knowles had a trolling tweet over the weekend about how much he loves candy corn. I have to assume it was trolling because nobody actually really likes candy corn except as a troll. So obviously it's a, it's a nay. It's a big nay for me on candy corn. Candy corn tastes like what they must have eaten for candy back in the 17th century. The, the pilgrims were eating this stuff on the Mayflower. This is, this is what you would consider a treat if you were stuck on a ship for months at sea eating bread filled with maggots. And then if someone gives, in that case, if someone gives you some candy corn, you would eat it. Only that analogy doesn't quite work either because candy corn also tastes it tastes distinctly modern in the sense that it tastes like a plastic byproduct. It tastes artificial, you know, plastic. It tastes like a. It tastes like a, it, it should have been made by Fisher Price. So I don't think anyone really likes candy corn. And you might be. I think maybe two or three times in my life I've gone through. There's been a moment, a, a moment of brief insanity where I'm weirdly in the mood for candy corn. But then you have one, and you snap out of it. And you realize how disgusting this stuff is. That's the official ruling on candy corn. Glad we could talk about that. You know, woke progressives will uh, try to do anything in their power to silence us, deplatforming, shadow banning, canceling, all the rest of it. The great thing about Daily Wire is no one can cancel us here. We uh, not only speak our mind here every day, but we also go the extra mile to interact with our audience too. I'm talking, of course, about All Access Live, our series of Q&As that we do every uh, week, every day. And the exciting news is that Jordan Peterson will be hosting his very first All Access Live tomorrow, September 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Now, you might remember Jordan has uh, had an appearance in my documentary, What is a Woman? If you don't remember, you should go back and rewatch it, not just because it's brilliant, but because um, that is the guy who might answer one of your questions, Jordan Peterson. That's right, you'll get the chance to ask the greatest thinker in Western civilization, a burning question, but only if you're a Daily Wire Plus All Access member. So if you're not yet a member, all you got to do is go to dailywire.com Walsh to subscribe today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we cancel a TikToker by the name of Jordana Grace. Now, as far as I could tell, based on the 35 seconds of research I did in preparation for this segment, Jordana is an unmarried, childless woman in her 30s. Um, from the looks of it. Uh, and no reason to make fun of someone because of that. There are people who are unmarried and childless in their 30s through no choice of their own. But if you're unmarried, no matter your age, the situation calls for some humility. There, there is obviously quite a lot about dating and relationships that you don't understand yet because you haven't made it to the next level. So if you're wise and uh, if you don't want to be single and lonely for your entire life, you'll listen with an open mind to the insights and advice of those who have made it farther down the road than you. And you'll especially listen to the voices of your ancestors who lived at a time when most people managed to get married much younger, and they stayed together much longer. They stayed together, in fact, in most cases, until death. 
because these were people who were bold enough to take the marriage vows seriously rather than treating them as we do, like a series of meaningless bumper sticker slogans. But listening humbly does not appear to be Jordana's strong suit. And so she has made a series of viral TikTok videos where she mocks 1950s dating advice. I believe she got this list from a, a magazine article from 1958, and it's absolutely hilarious, she thinks. Let's listen. Ladies, I found the handbook to bag you a husband. <laughs> a magazine from 1958 has posted 129 ways to find a husband. Here are the top tips. Number 17, be nice to ugly men because handsome is as handsome does. <laughs> Number 23, go to all your high school reunions because there could be widowers there. <laughs> Number 30, learn to paint and set up an easel outside of an engineering school. Number 25, go back to your hometown because the wild boy make because the wild boy next door might now be an eligible bachelor. Number 33, carry a hat box. Number 38, drop a handkerchief. It still works. Number 34, wear a band-aid so he can ask what's wrong. Number 40 is the best. Stand in a corner and cry softly because he'll come over and ask what's wrong. Let me just add one more tip right from the outset. Um, do not cackle condescendingly like some kind of smarmy hyena. Ladies, I'm, I'm telling you, there is nothing less attractive to a man than fake, pompous, shrieking, patronizing laughter. Now, men are famously visually oriented. If, you're, if, you, are, if you are physically attractive, it is relatively difficult to lose attractiveness points in our eyes. But condescension in general, and especially condescension in the form of an annoying laugh, that'll do it. It causes within us a reaction of, of, of actual physical revulsion. So just don't do it. It's not worth it. We love your warm, genuine laughter. We hate the fake, disdainful, I'm better than you laugh. So keep that one bottled up, bottled up if you can. But what about this advice from 1958? Uh, Jordana finds it hysterical. Now, she hasn't found a, her, found a husband herself yet, but she's quite sure that these tricks of the trade are laughably absurd. And I admit that through a modern lens, some of them do seem kind of funny. But let, let's drop that modern prejudice for a moment and, and take a look at them again. So first, it says, be nice to ugly men. Now, as an ugly man myself, I may be biased, but this seems like worthwhile advice to me. In fact, you should be nice to everyone as a default until they give you a good reason to act otherwise. Because men are attracted to nice women. Maybe that's like breaking news these days, but it's true. As previously covered, there is no personality trait in a woman that we find less attractive than rudeness and condescension. Despite all the modern propaganda telling women to be tough, hard-edged, girl bosses, quote-unquote, the fact is that men still prefer women who are kind and empathetic and warm and feminine. Also, on the subject of ugly men in particular, it's worth keeping in mind that men will often hit their peak physically, mentally, financially later in life. So from a woman's perspective, a man might be at his most desirable in his 30s, 40s, even 50s. There has been uh, many a man written off as ugly and undesirable in young adulthood who later checks every box. So that seems to be part of what this piece of advice is hinting at. Um, and I think this also mostly explains, explains the advice about going to high school reunions and returning to your hometown, though both of those are perhaps irrelevant in modern times because many adults never leave their hometowns and social media 
has made high school reunions mostly obsolete, I guess. You don't need to go to the reunion to see who got rich and who got fat. You have Facebook for that. What about the advice urging single women to uh, set up easels outside of an engineering school? Now, I'm not sure that I would choose an engineering school necessarily, as engineers tend to be sort of weird. But the general strategy is quite ingenious because men are attracted to women with artistic talents. We, we like that. We, you know, we don't much care about the money you make or how far you've climbed on the corporate ladder. But we do find artistic talent interesting. And this certainly works in the reverse, too, probably more so. The fact is that whether you're a man or a woman, you'll be seen as more beautiful if you can create beautiful things. And talent, whether artistic talent or any other kind of talent, is attractive in general to everybody. The rest of the advice all falls into the same category. You know, wear a Band-Aid, cry in a corner, carry a hat box. You might even try doing all these things at once. Now, I can't personally endorse the strategy because it's, it's a little bit too dishonest and manipulative for my taste, but I can't deny the potential effectiveness of it, of it either. See, the point is to ignite a man's chivalrous side. Give him a reason to help you. I assume the idea behind the hat box is that, you know, a man might offer to carry it for you. And a hat box is... I. I I don't know if I've ever seen a hat box, but I guess it's like pretty big and kind of cumbersome, but it's light. So that, that makes it easy. Like a man can offer to help for you, but it's not going to be too heavy for him. And he can feel like he's doing something. Now, I would perhaps update this to a more relevant object for the modern age, though a hat box would have the advantage of being an interesting conversation starter. It would give a man a chance to ask questions like, why did you buy this large hat? Why are you carrying it around in a box rather than on your head? Where are you going with the hat? What will you do with it when you get there? Many successful relationships have begun with hat-related conversations of this sort. Now, as for standing in the corner and crying or faking of physical injury, these are tactics as old as time itself. Men want to be able to help. They want to use their masculine energy in that way. There's a reason why the storybooks through the ages have always told of men rescuing damsels in distress. A man wants to be a hero. And if you can give a man that opportunity, hopefully in a less deceitful way, it will uh, benefit both you and him. The point is to encourage those nobler, more chivalrous impulses. And if such strategies are less reliable in modern times, it's only because men have been increasingly conditioned to suppress those masculine impulses on the basis that chivalry is toxic and patriarchal. Now, so it may be true that in some places in our country today, blue states mostly, a woman could cry in the corner and no man will come to her, her to her aid. But if that's the case, it's an indictment on our culture, not on the culture that produced the dating advice that this woman is mocking. And whatever you think of the advice, it is certainly better than the, than, than the list of advice that our culture would come up with. I'm, so think about it. A modern list of dating tips for women would sound something like this. Number one. Uh, totally neglect your physical appearance. Fat is beautiful. Body positivity means destroying your body on purpose. You go, girl. Number two, swear off having children. Make sure every, every man knows that if he ends up with you, his bloodline will die with him. Men just, they love that. Not going to leave a legacy behind that. They, they, they can't get enough of that. Number three, family life is uh, oppressive and archaic. So devote, devote yourself fully to uh, your employer instead. Men are sexually attracted to ambitious, career-minded women, most of all. That's what they want the most. 
Number four, the more bitter and disdainful you are, the better. And then finally, um, number five, you don't need no man. So make sure men know that you don't need them. Men love to not be needed. The more useless you make a man feel, uh, the more attracted to you he will be. That's, that's the modern list. And it's a list that would garner full approval on TikTok among women who have never been in a successful romantic relationship and probably never will be. Because they literally laugh at wisdom. In the words of scripture, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Which is why, in the much less eloquent words of the Matt Walsh Show, they are canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.